opposite of Spielberg face. In honor of Smile, what's cinema's most disturbing look? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with that scene in The Dark Knight where it's a funeral, and there's a guy who's not the Joker, but he's cut his face to look like the Joker, and you realize it at the last minute. It's terrible. I'm at Patches. I'm going to have to go with an image that only is burned in my brain and, and no one else's. It would be the kid smiling in a little photo next to RoboCop's desk in RoboCop the Reboot 2014. Anyone else? Uh, because of you, anyone it's burned in this? my brain. Okay, Be- because because so of you. I, I think I brought it up on last week's I, episode. <laughs> that's what made me think of it at this time. He, uh, uh, one whole week has passed and I'm still thinking about the kid from RoboCop 2014. What's wrong with me? Help! <laughs> You deleted all your old tweets. Is that screenshot still around I, somewhere? I keep it in a folder on my desktop. Not, mm. Please do not hack mm. me. <laughs> Labeled do not open. Do not open <laughs> nightmares within. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dave with a seven, and mine isn't necessarily cinema, but it is the one that haunts me. Uh, it's the Grinch coming up with a really good idea, and he smiles, and his face gets all wrinkly. And the, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Gross. What about when Tim Curry does it in Home Alone 2? I mean, I like the Home Alone 2 version. It's not necessarily scary. And then mm. uh, do not endorse uh, the live action version in any way. Not that bad. And I'm David Ehrlich. And I am going to go with the girl in the closet in the beginning of The Ring. Yep. That is terrifying, too. Thanks for reminding me of that. <laughs> As terrifying as a Robocop kid? No. Who can know? I mean, no. what, a, what a terrifying opening question. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 408 and it is Pandemic 132. It is the week of Wednesday, September 28th. That's the day that in 1976, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life album was released. Yay! Yeah, good history. I like it. I like it when we get something that's noteworthy and positive for the world. Uh, No complaints. And anytime I get lazy Uh, with a music break this week, I got a whole bunch of songs that I could just slot right in there. If you've never listened to that album, you listen to it and you're like, oh, I know this song. Oh, I know this one. Oh, that's where this comes from. It's uh, like the skeleton key. I thought Will Smith came up with this, but you would be wrong. Mm, Nope, he definitely didn't. Uh, David, I don't even have to ask you if you have reviews because I know that last week we had such a bumper crop. We got to dig, dive back into that well and mixing my metaphors. We (laughs) got a lot to talk about this week. into the crop well (laughs) i think that's just a silo and it's built up out of the ground not into the ground Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i apologize my sound is off this episode my bose headphones trusty bose headphones just died on me out of the blue yesterday despite no real reason to and uh, apparently bose stores where you used to be able to bring them in and just be like hey my bows don't work they'll give you a new one are no longer a thing that exists which i am not surprised to learn is not so sponsoring i may finally the podcast, have to uh, this yeah week. definitely not sponsoring what's the no, anti-ad I may have to finally yeah <laughs> i may have to finally invest in airpods which i have reservations about because a money and b sticking in my ear we'll see anyway go on go in uh on natural this episode just talking at my computer um with with no headphones uh, we have a review from Rachel9206. 
who says long overdue. This review is long overdue, both because I've been listening for years and because the question I have is from a month's old episode. But first, I love the banter here. I listen to you guys all over the place, but the dynamic you have here is fun and engaging. On to my question. Months ago, in one of Patch's matches, you decided that Venom would beat the Night King. Now I'll admit I'm not a symbiote expert, but could Venom actually take over the White Walkers and Whites if they're not actually alive? Wouldn't their bodies be unfit hosts? What do you think? Also, Katie, I apologize for this question. You deserve something deeper to discuss. <laughs> wa- not anything deeper. I'm just. Are the White Walkers? I don't remember doing this at not all. Not alive. I do recall this. This was the Whites. Who would win? We are not alive. The White Walkers are very alive. Right. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. Right. So the Night King is alive, but he resurrects dead people as whites. Mm-hmm. Because he has a shard of dragon glass into his hearts that the children pushed in there to curse him for forever. So Venom, wow. Venom would be fine there on the Night King. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would he be able to take over dead bodies? That's also debatable in theory, probably, but it, it, they, they like being a symbiote. They like having two... So you stand by it, is what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I definitely stand by it. Venom could take over the, the Night King. What is the Night King going to... All right. The Night King uh, is immune to fire, which Venom would love, because that's one of the things that Venom doesn't like. And then the other thing would be sonic attacks, and I don't think they have a lot of those in Westeros. Night King doesn't speak. So what, uh, what, is, he, what is he fighting uh, Venom with here? This would be my question. Also, for people who, uh, who don't keep up with, with comic books, Venom has become basically a god now. He can see through time, and he is like all-powerful, universal entity mm. in the Marvel is, Universe. Is, is Tom that Hardy how Tom Venom Hardy like won this? at that like, UFC tournament? <laughs> That's right. He could be anywhere and do anything. Uh, good for him. Happy for Venom. Moving up in the world. Uh, used to be Topher Grace, and now he's a god. <laughs> yeah. Anything's possible out there, people. Um, we have a review from Medesaparacido, who says, Holler, picked up this pod in 2016 when I was relocating from Boulder to Atlanta, and I eagerly await its release every week. A class unto itself, truly one of one. An aside, right after the fake out, all caps, I think I know what they're referring to, Matt <laughs> and Dave, I closed the podcast and missed four weeks. Y'all really need Katie and should have bounced that off her. Wow, truth. Spoken. Yeah, I've been saying uh, this for. I don't know. We're still talking about it. It seems it's like it's, it was an effective <laughs> goof. It was. You were still talking best about the last season Time of Game Magazine. of Thrones too, but no one's psyched about that, right? <laughs> uh, speaking of, I'm in the triangle now, and I benefit immensely oh. from random Rex drive-through film festival during the pandemic. Anyone? Mm-hmm. And she also turned me on to many other podcasts with Richard and Joanna, and her new excellent work at The Ringer with Mal and the Midnight Boys. Patches, I go to Polygon for all my Breath of the, Breath of the Wild walkthroughs. Mm. Probably led traffic when I was Lionel hunting. You've <laughs> got great perspectives, but you need to throw that god darn person's mail away, bro. Oh, yeah. I have. What is that? What is that? You, were, you were out oh, that episode. Were you not, no, he wasn't. You, were, you missed the episode where Patches was committing mail fraud. <laughs> oh, I am not. Whoa, 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 whoa. Bad boy. <laughs> we we, to to fair, we cut out the part about mail fraud, so... <laughs> That's just between us. I'm not Dave opening Seven, this mail. Trial by, con- trial by content is fantastic. The Lost Rewatch is stellar. And I hope you're able to chill soon, as I know how busy you are. <laughs> I'm Colorado-raised, Boulder degree. Keep up the local shout-outs and get a hot Santiago's burrito. And think of this review. I respect the COVID measures. You're not alone. God damn it, Ehrlich. You're my fave on the pod if I was a Sith and dealt in absolutes. Is that what the Sith do? Yes. I don't know. 
Only the set deal. Uh, all I know is about the various synergies they have together in Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. I always search for your review after a trip to my local Alamo. Justice for Blake Lively's stolen Oscar for Simple Favor. Wow. Yeah, uh, cool. But Simple Favor 2 coming I in hot. I can't believe that. What is wrong excited. with the world? <laughs> because uh, everyone just needs more content. Is what it is like an HBO Max guys? original or something? It better not be. That's really... I we'll, think it's an Amazon cool. joint. Oh, boy. Yeah. Life is so sad. These folks love each other for real, and their passion and collective experiences always make for a top-tier show. Oh, they talk about movies and video games and TV and pop culture and know their stuff. Was this helpful? Very helpful. So it's helpful. a pod, and they fight in a war room, but everyone is right. Appreciate y'all. We appreciate you, uh, Medispar- Medisaparacito. Des- it's like Desparacito with a med in front of it. Anyway. Oh. This is David's <laughs> opinion only. <laughs> I mean, I'm imagining how this is spelled, and you're helping me. It's M E D E S A P A R E C I D O. Got it. Okay. Should we do one um, more? Are we, are we still working through the backlog here? We're we're just going to do one last one, and uh, then we'll see. We have three more for next week. Wow. Um, back again, says Andrew Corbin. Last time I wrote a review, David wasn't on. This is the gentleman who was looking for me at the Thor screening, or was the thing mm. he I didn't. I think I'm actually getting coffee with them later this week. So hey. dreams can come true. Uh, David wasn't on, so hopefully I'm not over two. I'm getting prepped for attending the New York Film Festival, my first in-person film festival I've been accredited to in a few weeks. I was curious how all of you balance writing reviews at these festivals when you see so many films in a small period of time. Anyways, love the show and keep up the great work, y'all. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, how do you do it? Well, I would say, and let me know if you guys agree with me, it is impossible. I don't know where Andrew lives full time. I don't believe it's in New York City. It is impossible in my experience to really do a film festival in the city where you live because to do it the way that we need to do it when you're working it, when you're writing reviews, uh, the clip at which you're required at these things, you have to be in a bubble. You can't have laundry to do and a kid to look after. And um, it really needs to be all consuming for the time you're doing it. Um, but, this is my uh, memory from New York Film Festival when I lived there before I had kids. Uh, my main memory, though, David, of you at like Toronto, where you don't live, is being like, David, come have dinner. And you're just hunched over a table outside of a restaurant being like, I can't. I got to write. Bye. Yeah. And then we never <laughs> well, see you again. Now, well, that's productive uh, for my, my strategy. To be fair. Yeah, I mean, it is a very it is a very uh, busy and productive time of year for me. But uh, my strategy now for those things is to do as much as possible before I go to Telluride and then work my ass off Telluride in the week between. And then hopefully by the end of Toronto, I am able to uh, at least be able to take a few hours off here and there. But it's definitely, um, it's hard whatever city you're in, uh, especially if you're accredited to these festivals, you usually have uh, some kind of workload, whether self-imposed or if you have uh, assignments and deadlines. Um, but that's also the the sort of like, punch drunk joy of being at them is, is being be able to immerse yourself in the movies and to sort of live and breathe in them for as long as you're able to, to do so as the festivals allow you to. Um, and I tend to find them more focused in those environments and able to produce more, write more, um, if not necessarily better than I can. Uh, <laughs> Definitely produce a so, lot quality work, but it's fun when you, when you're like, especially if you haven't been to these other festivals, like, New York, you know, is, is a lot of films from other festivals. And I think a lot of us in New York, we're just going for a couple screenings here and there over the next few weeks. But if you are, this is your first festival you're accredited to, most of the films, if not all of the films playing there are going to be new to you. And you're really going to have a chance to see 
you know, three or four really major or thoughtful pieces of work in the course of the day. And I think, you know, being they get that degree of exposure, that volume of, of things to think about after, you know, summer season in particular is going to be overwhelming and exciting in the best of ways. And hopefully we'll, uh, encourage this person to and all people to do it to, to think about movies i don't know differently draw connections have fun souls <laughs> yeah. like that are what made me want to do this in the first place so it's kind of a uh, monkey's paw but um, <laughs> enjoy uh, hard, if you'd like hard, to leave hard. us a review on the show go on fight go on itunes fighting in the war room uh leave us a review we will read it live on the show if you are not in the united states and don't have immediate access to the united states apple store you can email us as well where we will read reviews uh, from our email account when we don't have new ones on iTunes. Dave, where can they email us? You can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You decoding man, you send you up. Reason calling nights and nine twos up. All right. <laughs>Damon, David, you've seen Barbarian and I haven't, but I want you to answer this paradox that I have, sort of knowing what the movie's about. It's a horror movie released by Disney in theaters, and they didn't, like, screw it up or dump it, and people are actually enjoying it. None well, of this tracks with my understanding of... <laughs> there's not an empty man, if that's what you mean. There, there are a few asterisks there. It's, okay. It is technically released by Disney because Disney owns everything and everyone. But it was distributed well, it was a by Fox, it was a Fox it's 20th movie, right? Century Studio, so it's, it's yeah. definitely taking a different approach. They did basically dump it and try to fuck it up, uh, <laughs> and yet somehow uh, Barbarian prevailed and uh, did. You know, it opened on a very, 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 very quiet weekend where it was sort of like guaranteed to be number one, barring catastrophe. And then people really liked it and kept chattering about it and being like, "Yo, you guys got to see this!" And word of mouth spread and. Now it's made at the time of recording this a cool thirty point five million dollars off a four million dollar budget. Wow! I, wow! I did not realize how cheap but it was. They were confident about it. They screened it at Comic Con. They tried to screen it in New York shortly thereafter, and the DCP had an issue, and so they ended up not screening it until like the week of release. But they were confident about it. Um, yeah, I think they this, just didn't really like go guns blazing more in terms endorsement of, of this the movie money. than. But I mean. I, I still have not seen this movie either, but it sounds from the people I've talked to that there was a lot to hold back on, that it's the kind of movie that needs word of mouth that would benefit from explaining less or showing less and, and letting people yeah, whisper I, about I went it, into it for knowing, weeks ahead. I, I went into it knowing absolutely nothing save for one, the fact that Justin Long was in it, and two, that Tusk it was somehow about Justin podcasting. Long. And uh, I Wait, will tell really? you it's also about podcasting? ended up being... Well, no, I'll tell you, only okay. one of those two things ended up being true. Oh, so someone was selling you on BJ Tusk. Novak mo- this is Tusk. Were you thinking <laughs> about the BJ Novak movie that's about podcasting? I mean, I got them confused in my head. I don't know. Because this one's about an Airbnb, right? <laughs> it is about an Airbnb. I would, I've literally never heard anyone say it with that particular emphasis before. But um, oh, I mean, that's my Southern <laughs> accent. Maybe it, I don't it know. Is, um, it is like an Airbnb. An Airbnb. It's like a Airbnb in the sky. Uh, but the um, it is about an Airbnb. There is no trace of podcasting in the movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, thank God. A movie can't handle Airbnb but, and podcasting. And Justin Long is in it. And that is really all I knew. Uh, Dave, do you want to set up just like the bare bones first 20, 25 minutes of plot? Sure. Yeah. Uh, we meet 
a woman, woman named Tess, uh, played by Georgina Campbell, who is driving up to her Airbnb. Uh, go ahead. It's just we're, we're all debating how to pronounce Airbnb now. <laughs> no one knows. Airbnb. And um, <laughs> uh, she gets there and opens the key lock box on the outside and there's not a key inside and she's pissed. But then she sees the light turn on. So she knocks and Bill Skarsgård opens up the door. His name's Keith. He is also staying in the house. Uh, he booked through a different app and it appears the two apps have not talked to each other. They both have uh, receipts on their phone that says they're definitely supposed to be there. Um, it, uh, Keith is like, this is a bad neighborhood. You should not uh, go anywhere. There's a um, some sort of convention. They're in Detroit. They're in Detroit. Did you mention the Detroit only? There's yeah. a convention in town. Uh, I was trying to do it linearly, and I don't think we really get a revelation of the neighborhood until the morning. But uh, there's a convention in town, so all, all the right. hotels are booked up. So Keith this says, you know, you could have the bedroom. I'm going to sleep on the couch. You should stay here. You know, it's not safe to, to go anywhere else and we could work this out. He seems to be very nice. Uh, he offers uh, to do the sheets on the bed for her because Tess has a thing about needing to sleep in clean sheets. And while the laundry's going, um, he offers to make her some tea. She declines. Uh, then he's like, I have this bottle of wine. We could have some wine together. I'm going to open it in front of you because I know you didn't watch me see the tea. So Keith definitely knows that he is a man and she is a woman of color. And this could all be very powered in balancey. And it does feel like it's going to go that direction for a little bit until they hit it off. Because it turns out she is in Detroit to interview for uh, as a uh, research assistant for a documentarian who is making a documentary about all the hipsters who come to Detroit uh, for their cheap housing and create like artist colonies and revive neighborhoods. And Keith is like, hey, you know what? I'm one of those people. And she's like, holy shit. They're like, hey, this is working out. These two people seem to be having a fun time. Uh, they go to sleep. It's a movie called Barbarian. This is going to go great. <laughs> they, they go to sleep. Uh, she's awoken in uh, the middle of the night because her door is open and Keith is having some sort of nightmare. She wakes Keith up. Keith seems very disoriented himself uh, and a little weirded out that she would wake him up. She goes, ah, fuck, like thinking that she'd fucked up this relationship, uh, just like friendship or anything, because now she's the creepy one. Goes back to bed, wakes up in the morning. Keith is gone. She goes to her interview. She comes back. And uh, Keith has yet to return. So she goes into the house and uh, does uh, some exploring uh, because there's a um, basement door that's open. And when she peeks into the basement, the door shuts behind her, locking her in the basement, which causes her to further explore the basement uh, to try to find a way out. And she finds a... Let's just say the basement is bigger than she would have guessed. Yeah, she finds a hidden door that let's leads just, to more basement. <laughs> let's just leave it at that. But... Oh, this is making me very anxious. The movie, the movie, movie. does not go uh, where you expect it to. I mean, it, it is one of those movies that jump cuts away, not jump cuts, but sort of like abruptly cuts away uh, at the height of your tension as she's in the basement to a completely new character somewhere else. Uh, and, uh, and then gradually comes back to that location, explores it deeper. 
uh, and goes into some pretty fun and twisted directions. But it, this movie does something that I love in a horror movie, something that Nope did really well uh, for me earlier this year, which is when harm you you realize later on in a film what has been happening simultaneously or concurrently, you know, parallel to the action that we see, uh, like what what other characters were doing at that same time. Uh, so you can sort of imagine the space where it seemed like a scene was with this lead character was sort of safe and she was just minding her business and chilling out in her new Airbnb. But later we learn what was really going on simultaneously and maybe a the same location unbeknownst to her i love that uh i think it's really creepy it's like with the horses ale you know jean jackie eating all the horses the background of the first hour of nope sort of thing um so barbarian has that going for it uh it is really fun i didn't i, I it, is, it is a lot of fun the second act in particular with justin long is is a blast and he plays the kind of character that i hadn't really seen played in this way with this kind of like shit eating fun before uh and the the bit some of the, the reveals as to what's actually going on are really amusingly from left field and the imagery is you, is great uh I'm i don't okay, i don't know how much it all what was that Dave? i'm gonna yes all of that but also yeah. i think it's uh when we figure out what's going on it's pretty terrifying and the movie portrays it in a way where it's about tension and it's about being terrified but there's a lot of places in this movie where, uh, you know, the directors of Saw or whatnot would have gone in a different, uh, more horrible direction for the sake of being horrible. And I think this movie does a really good job at setting you up for tension that you can take and letting you get the idea without having to show you, you know, like someone getting disemboweled or whatever is happening down there. Um, there isn't like a sudden gore explosion in this movie like i was kind of expecting given the feeling of the first half of it uh which i think is great i think it's not only that plus the cutaways that uh david's talking about plus the choices about what we learn about characters and why we learn it about characters it, it's all just of a very well formulated piece it doesn't feel like a well what about this premise can we make it into a movie uh sort of thing it's is definitely an Airbnb movie, but I don't think after anybody who's seen it would describe it necessarily as the Airbnb movie. Yeah, it's not the kind of movie, it's not the kind of horror movie that falls into the this could happen to me category uh, that will necessarily <laughs> be running through your head the next time you are at an Airbnb. Um, you know, even like I think a lesser Airbnb film, uh, Dave Franco's The Rental is a lot more terrifying in that regard because it's so much more uh, grounded and sort of quotidian. Um, this ends up being a lot more ridiculous than that. But yeah, uh, and the backstory doesn't entirely click for me. And I think that there's some sort of wasted potential regarding what it's saying about this neighborhood and the city and and some other aspects. I mean, even talking about some of the themes that it explores, I think could be slightly ruinous just because of how much fun I had going in completely um, you know, not knowing what was happening in this movie, I want to preserve that for other people. But it is fun the whole way through, and it continues to make uh, sort of unexpected choices um, down to the last five or ten minutes. Nothing that really knocked my socks off, but all of which was was greatly amusing. And I watched through you know, my fingers, and uh, uh, the name of the guy made it Zach Kreger. Yeah, can I? The yeah, can, I want. I want to bring this up because I want. Uh, I wanted to end maybe on on a question for you guys about this. So Zach. 
and I go way back because I worked on the Wise Kids. You know, I helped produce the Wise Kids. You know, wow. so I I've seen Zach wow. in action. Um, and R.I.P. to wow. to Trevor. Uh, you know, we lost Trevor. I forget if that was a year or two ago. Now that's just horrifying. But um, you know, those two actually had made a movie before on the on the heels of Wise Kids. You know, they made this just horrible movie called Miss March that was a total just like sex comedy. Oh, Two thousand nine, like way yeah. too late. They were stars. They directed it. It was a lot of like the whitest kids, but the dumbest version of whitest kids. Um, mm. And but they've always had this ambition of of kind of leveraging sketch comedy and being overly ambitious in the sketch space too. They made a whole movie within the episodes of Whitest Kids You Know once called The Civil War on Drugs, which was like this time travel comedy. Um, and and they were always kind of leveraging their sketch knowledge to to do something bigger. And I think with the success of Jordan, Which, like uh, Jordan Peele. Well, that's what I want to bring up. Like with Jordan Peele kind yeah. of coming from sketch and Zach coming from sketch. I wonder if you see the DNA of of comedy instincts in these movies more than people with horror pedigree. Like Zach really has no horror background on his IMDb or yeah. in his history, but this is the movie he made, and I wonder if there's you know we made some horrifying sketches and why his kids you know to be clear he um, has a real yeah. he has a real command of the craft i mean i think that this movie is you know it, it's not doing anything revolutionary and it's not like you know from a new master of horror or anything like that but i think the the mood the scares the the way that tension is pulled it's all very very well and intelligently done uh, i would say to your question about the comedy of it all i think i mostly saw it baked into the justin long character who, uh, you know, ends up fully immersed in the horror with everybody else, but, and represents some horror of his own, but uh, is his entire predicament and like the, <laughs> how his character is introduced is, I think, very funny in its way. Well, I don't, I, know, Dave, I don't do even know if, if I mean the comedy of it all. I really mean like a comedy person's instincts, like a joke teller's instincts, or if, if sketch well, feels like the way yeah, you build a horror like, movie, uh, if you go a different direction. The ridiculousness, it, it feels like the challenge that he sort of set for himself in terms of like what is going on without saying anything about that is that he wants it to be both ridiculous and scary at the same time. That the kind of thing that if someone just told you what it was, you can't imagine being frightened, but in the moment of experiencing it, you, you think it's kind of, it's both ridiculous and terrifying. And I think like that probably speaks a little bit to the comedy background and just the, the tonality that he's playing with. Yeah, or just being able to set stuff up with inference and have it land and not feel like it's undercooked or overexplained. Like that's a thinner line that I think uh, a lot of people give it credit for. And I think Barbarian walks it really well because David's right. There's some really funny things. And then like it by the end, it does sort of get to a ridiculous place that you can't really... Uh, guess at from watching the trailers and the marketing uh so yeah i think i think it definitely helps knowing how to be able to look at like a script that you're building and build it out visually and situationally to still have the beats in a pretty consistent manner uh even if it does occasionally uh structurally defy what i think a linear story is supposed to be doing barbarian so people should go see it yeah go it's see it it's not going to be on disney plus or anything like it's a uh, only theaters yeah yeah, yeah. eventually it'll be and, on and a it, platform yeah it actually gained theaters last weekend because the word of mouth had been so strong and it's and box office nothing else coming out and there was nothing else uh, other than you know a 10 million dollar avatar re-release so uh um 
Yeah. Woman Kings holding strong. Bros is coming. It's yeah, so bros is not coming. so bad. I, I mean, we'll talk about this off show, but we, of all the things we're talking about, potentially talking about next week, we, we should talk about bros. Talk about bros? Yeah. Anyway, Sea Barbarian at the end of the movie, try to guess what the title's about. That was my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite interactions with it. Well, I think the title was like a placeholder and it just kind of stuck and doesn't necessarily I mean, have any drive. In between segments, I'll tell you what the title means. Okay. Oh, shit. You can contradict what Wikipedia just told me. Uh, or maybe it's the exact same thing Wikipedia just told you. Wait, are you, uh, should, should, should you just say it now and people can skip this part? Or I want to know. I mean, you will be on the call. Yeah, I'm just going too. to edit it oh. after the podcast because Sorry, we're doing listeners. another segment. No, no, no uh, transition. Katie Rich went back to the theaters to see a movie that I'm told has no cultural impact, but I remember very well outside of the villain's name. Katie, what what format did you see Avatar in this week? Uh, I believe I saw it in IMAX 3D. Uh, IMAX, not like, you know, I spent a lot of time at the IMAX at Lincoln Center in New York where it is truly massive. This was like a pretty big IMAX screen. It was the first 3D movie I'd seen. I think I was talking to you guys about this. I truly don't know when was the last time I saw a 3D movie. Like maybe 2015 or Hugo? so. Like whenever they... Life of Pi? I mean, that was like 2011. Like they were doing like default Marvel movies in 3D for a while. Anyway, so it had been a while. And I went with Charlie who had never seen a 3D movie because he was born in 2016. Um, who was asked to be on this podcast and said no, which is his prerogative um perhaps he will come it's too back expensive someday. he does the better podcast he gets paid <laughs> it's true i know i he uh, his agent was really tough negotiation it's called charlie uh, and the he... bullshit factory and he just talks about <laughs> politics that would rip he's he's on red scare somehow <laughs> uh he loved it and i loved it i had such a great time watching avatar i had forgotten plenty about it including the villain's name um, but like how the story worked, like I kind of remembered the highlights of it. And Avatar is one of those things that when you look back at it, you're just like, God, it was like blue people. And like Giovanni Ribisi was such a ridiculous villain. And like, like you talk about it like an ayahuasca cool? trip. <laughs> well, like, was it, it kind really of, there? I think when you, t- when you take like individual parts of it, it feels really silly, but the movie draws you in and convinces you that you were like, like when they play dazzled basketball by it, and then you are mm-hmm. dazzled by it. I love it when they play basketball. Like, I talk all the time about how James Cameron knows how to make a fucking movie, but he knows how to make a fucking movie. And you get to that last hour where it's incredible action sequence. It's so well, like, the geography is perfect. You know where everything is. You know who's where and what's going on. And it has all these, like, callbacks to things that have been drawn into the world. It's, like, established this entire complete alien planet in two-plus hours. It's a long movie. Um, but it all pays off so much in that last sequence. Um, it just made me really excited to see The Way of Water, which obviously I was before. Um, and just, like, grateful for a reminder that, like, if a movie is made well, it can kind of convince you. You can go along for a ride on almost anything if it's a good movie. Um, and I realize I say that, it makes it sound like I'm supporting, like, Birth of the Nation or something. Um, <laughs> wow. but, like, Are you? A, a movie, like... <laughs> I've never seen it, actually. I don't plan to. Um, but, like, 
that's the whole point of fantasy and sci-fi is that it's going to draw you into something that you didn't think you cared about or could be real and avatar does that so incredibly well um i don't know how long it's gonna be in theaters by the time people hear this it might not even be there anymore but man i had such a good time rewatching well, how old is i'm charlie, sorry that this right? that it predates charlie is six and he sat through he's the young two to see avatar. Hour movie. yeah wow he sat through the whole thing i mean it like it was a little touch and go there in the middle um you know i don't think he was like enjoying giovanni rubisi hilarious does not get enough credit like over the top villain but really funny that was his report big, um big no laughs, he just he like said. you could just fun, fun. you could see the like tension of the movie like you could see him like getting antsy and like not knowing what was going to happen like watching a kid who's like kind of figuring out like how a movie like messes with your expectations and makes you feel something even though you like think you know it's going to turn out well, but you don't know for sure, um, and like it just plays you like a fiddle in that way. It's ta- it like gives you a story, it tells you what to expect from it, it subverts it like every single step of the way. Um, it knows what it's doing. Can I my my biggest question and the reason that I wanted to go and check this out uh, while it's back in theaters is about the high frame rate look of the three D, which is a it new- was n- it was not in high frame rate. It was at not all. in high frame. It rate. did not look yeah. like that to me. At least. Maybe like, I saw I, my information wrong but i i dave would would probably it's definitely know maybe some of them are no and i think i believe in dolby theaters it's playing in high frame rate. Oh, okay okay specifically because yeah mine was not in high frame dolby. rate i think the, the sequel is going to be put out pretty far and wide in high frame rate is yeah. my my guess and i am that sounds nervous terrible about being able to sort of separate my f- enjoyment of the movie from gemini man look good. i mean he's james framing james framing james, james framing James Cameron keeps talking about how they sort of like cracked the code on high frame rate and it's come a long way since the days of The Hobbit, but it's guilty until proven innocent for me. So, um, did you like Gemini Man in high frame rate, David? Did not. Oh, come on. I never saw Gemini Man. Times. I would have forgotten Gemini Man. Also, existed. the uh, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which I also saw in Super Hyper. Okay, Boomer Eyes. I, mean, I think that. I think the frame rate on Avatar, like, I think it needs to be not high frame rate. It doesn't need to feel hyper real. It needs to feel like you're being transported to something that's not quite reality the way that movies have been doing for a hundred years. Like, I, that feels like a real aesthetic mistake to me. I don't, but then again, I'm the person who's always like, James Cameron says so, then it's true. So that's the thing. I, don't know. I think who it am I, is. Who am I, doubt him? I think it is, it can be immersive. And if, if the film is almost all animated, which it seems like it will be even more than I'm, this original Avatar. It could benefit. I think from there that. are people who are playing just humans this time too. Yeah, like like Michelle Yeoh, I think is playing a person, not a Navi. Jake Sully has a whole oh. person child he's adopted. Is my That's understanding. True. There are little kids in the movie. A person? This is like a, a human child? Yeah, this is a YA a film. Well, I mean, he's like a teenager or something. I don't know, I've just seen stills. Yeah, well, they the, showed the kid like a, aspect of it all makes me so nervous. Yeah, they showed a section of the new one at the end of Avatar, and it was like just all this underwater sequence of kids swimming. But like, it looked spectacular. Obviously, like a James Cameron doing like three D underwater <laughs> computer imagery, like is what he was born to do. Um, I don't know what like again, like when you see a little bit of Avatar out of context, you're like, okay, fine, I don't get it. Um, and so I think you need to see the full thing to get if it's going to be good. I hope it's good. Can't wait to I mean, I'm keeping jump the on my great Leonoptrix and fly again to the wow. world of Pandora. Isn't Leon? Uh, yeah. I, I is anyone else going to see it again in theaters? Like, I understand why it's not a top priority. No, but... I, I wanted to duck in for 15 minutes if it was playing in high frame rate, but just to see it again, 
on the big screen. Uh, I've seen that movie enough. Uh, I, 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 I know enough to be excited for the sequel. Don't get me wrong. I've heard, but uh, I've heard tell that it's going to go for 3 billion, uh, worldwide. So it yeah. sounds like it might either be extended or they're going to do uh, double features come December. And Ooh, if I the could, Avatar marathon. Yeah, if I, I'm perfectly willing to do an Avatar marathon uh, in December if they want to wait until everything else that I have to watch, I uh, I've seen. I, I could spend like six hours at Pandora. That sounds great. Avatar needs another $120 million to hit worldwide three billion that's a lot yeah but it also it it bodes well for obviously like the 30 million dollars that it made this weekend in worldwide and its re-release bodes well for how the sequel is going to do which i think is good news for everybody just because one there's personally someone (laughs) it's like well someone who you know likes james cameron despite everything and you know he made one of the great films ever and for me which is titanic uh i i'm happy to after 10 years of people just yammering on the internet because it's an easy target about how avatar left no impression and so on and so forth i mean without having to be a particularly big avatar defender myself i still would much rather that movie overperform than underperform uh at a personal yeah. satisfaction but also it's uh, something that the movies in general movie theaters in particular need uh is a big colossal holiday hit um so this all this all sounds like good news to me i don't have to see it to know that I had not actually seen it since 2010, probably, um, which is, I guess, why I had forgotten the plot of it and um, enjoyed it immensely. Avatar, the Navi are back. They fuck with their tails. Heard of there's, it? A, there's a scene in the new, I mean, of course there is, in the new I definitely documentary. Thought about, you uh, saw them, Nateri and Jake Sully. I thought you saw their tails go together. You don't. This is Mandela. Yeah, effect. totally. I absolutely thought that was in there, and it's not. You see it with them doing it with an, with like other creatures, but not. And that's they fuck other creatures. That's gross. The way it was meant um, to <laughs> Look, they're connected to the earth and to uh, it's a great circle of life. I don't know. Anyway, I was going to say you. to put a button on this. That there, there's a scene. There's a scene A-Wan. in the new Werner Herzog documentary, which is all about where thought and like, the tail. way thinking works. Where he just randomly goes on the side about the Navi, and he's like, "The Navi <laughs> on Pandora yeah. are touching their tails or whatever." <laughs> and uh, you know, I just thought that people should know about that. Werner Herzog seems like he would be an Avatar. Oh yeah, you can see, you can see that. Uh, he should valley. be an Avatar. He should be an Avatar. Big Sully, your real legs. <laughs> I want to see the the Navi. The your real legs line is not as like overdone as oh, I you? thought. Like there's a there was a lot of What's like the other line fakey fake. Like um, gonna eat your eyes for jujubes. He's talking about how tough they are to take down or something. What does he say? He's like, and uh, they are very hard to kill, is what he they says. They are very hard to <laughs> that kill. That trailer mm-hmm. is completely great in my mind. And they Good are line. very hard to kill. David, you were at the Comic-Con where they showed that footage from him. That wasn't your I was. Comic-Con. It was David awesome. went to Comic-Con. It was awesome. I, I just want to say the start of this Don't Worry Darling uh, segment to kick off something that Katie was just saying off off air. Uh, I did not see Don't Worry Darling at Venice, but I did see, and I just want this to be something that people keep in mind when we talk about the movie. I did see Don't Worry Darling before 
most of the recent to do around the movie before harry styles absolutely spit on chris pine <laughs> yeah I, I think it was like mid to late august uh and it was like the movie had been i, I think it was like somewhat troubled there would have been rumors you know that this is before the shia labeouf receipts came out yeah yeah okay why are you uh, prefacing that's when it really you, you wanted to clear uh, the just air because and say I, that you haven't been caught I, up like I was I so didn't like it. Like I was huffing <laughs> involuntarily throughout the movie, just like, uh, like every fucking five minutes. Uh, and I just I just want to make it clear because I think the 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 hubbub around the movie has been so consumed by the you know the drama around it that I, my opinion of my very low opinion of this movie was untainted by that um and i was largely uninterested in the the you know to do that came around maybe you're just uncomfortable with female pleasure david as olivia wilde has said this is all about pleasure there's so much there's so So much female pleasure in this movie matt patches uh it's really about like women owning things for themselves and like taking control of their destiny i think that's what this movie's about The plot, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, the, the plot <laughs> section on Wikipedia has a warning that says this article may contain an excessive amount of intricate detail that may interest only a particular audience. So wow. that's where we are <laughs> in the conversation around Don't Worry, Darling. People seem to be seeing it and being like, that's what this was all about? And that was my reaction. Um, because I definitely saw it after all the press and stuff happened. And had really been consuming a lot of it because I, you know, came up through pornography and gossip before I got to writing about movies. So I was like, maybe this is like sort of in my warehouse with like a trashy and then the Joe Reed's amazing piece on Vanity Fair that reminded me about Cleopatra mm. uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, the idea that like a gossipy movie can draw you into an experience. I just this watching this movie is like going to the DMV. <laughs> it's it's just... Tell me more. I like Florence Pugh's leaving it all on the stage or on the film. The what She's leaving it all on the floor. She's, she's, she's doing... On the Palm Springs pool deck. On the Palm deck. Springs pool deck. She's doing the best she can. It's uh, shot very competently, but it is like... It all looks like a Super Bowl commercial is what you mean. It's like... I, I said mm. competently. It's like it's oh, shot com- competently. Well. Uh, it's, I, I just, it, it is like a Twilight Zone episode that is like part of season seven of the Twilight Zone where you know, you know, like there's going to be a twist coming and it just never stops to acknowledge that you could either be on the same page as any of the characters or ahead of the movie, which you most definitely are. I like you, if you're picking, if you've ever seen a, any sort of motion picture of any kind. <laughs> if you've seen a fucking zoetrope, you're going to be ahead of this movie. Well, because it's not like it commits to the idea of being like, look at this cool world everyone lives in. Like, it starts from a place of like, there's something wrong here. Like, that's baked in from the very start, which, but, and then it like circles around it for the longest time. Like, the way that it's not willing to like dole out bits of information about what's really going on. It's like, it's weird. It's weird. It's weird. Not all is right. These women are not happy. And then it just reveals everything at the end. The pace is, makes no sense. It's, not just the pace. it's like there's no there's no detail to be parceled out. I mean, there's no nuance to it whatsoever. It's like the barest bone of a log line for an episode of the Black Mirror or something. And it, it doesn't develop that whatsoever. There's no texture to it. 
And it's mind boggling to me. And this is truly why I was just bored out of my Could fucking mind. Could someone set mind. up the movie like, a little movie, bit? Because I feel like I've heard... Just, just one second. Is yeah. that uh, it's the big <laughs> plot twist at the end, which we will reveal later, I suppose, is should have been the inciting incident. <laughs> should have been the end of the mm. first act. I just I heard so many people yeah. talk about the ending of this movie. I'm like, what happened yeah. to the beginning? Like, what is the setup that well, we'll get was there, expected to entertain people? The end of the movie patches should have been what happened <laughs> I, to the beginning. I understand. All right. I'm just like, this well, movie... who does Florence Pugh even play? I, I haven't read a, mm. that much about right, this movie Dave except being yeah, exasperated. Florence Pugh plays a character named Alice who is never in some sort of weird wonderland in terms of the history of that name. Her, She's living with her husband, uh, played by Harry Styles, who's named Jack. They live in a community that is in the 1950s. Uh, we are... Wink, wink. Uh, we are told by cooking... Uh, apparatuses, uh, diets, um, Olivia Wilde smoking, and uh, the television that they have in the house. Uh, in this uh, town uh, called Victory, uh, all the men leave every day to go to work. All the women are meant to stay home, clean the house, cook in the kitchen, go shopping, sit by the pool. Uh, I guess sort of gossip, but that's been locked down because uh, Chris Pine's Frank, who is the leader of the Victory Project, uh, seems to have a stranglehold on these people's uh, hearts and minds, uh, specifically the men who treat him as some sort of, like, uber-boss, demigod-like figure. And Alice suddenly realizes, thanks to her neighbor Margaret, seemingly very unhappy trying to tell everybody something uh she sees margaret uh attempt suicide and then is gaslit that that didn't really happen which sets alice on a journey that involves her going outside the boundaries of the town to see a plane crash she thinks she's seen Does that happen after she sees margaret commit suicide uh, it might happen before it the plane I, I, crash I was, that is uh, never at all addressed. Right. Well, no. well, Margaret. I was trying to just remember like what the pieces of her like realizing it's not a utopia because it feels like it starts really early. Margaret approaches her with a toy plane that belonged to her son, and that's the same plane she seems crash. But I think you're right. The Margaret attempted suicide happens after the plane crash. Anyway, she goes to investigate the plane crash site. She's not supposed to be out there. It's a place called headquarters. Not supposed to go there. Only the men get to go there. She goes up to it. It's like on top of a mountain. It's a bunch of mirrors. She touches the two mirrors, wakes up back at her house. Jack's cooking dinner. Is like, you were asleep when I got here. And all these things start uh, picking at Alice's brain. So she starts questioning the nature of her reality, which nobody wants her to do. So they But also no one has ever done in a movie before. Right. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. Uh, we're uh, led to believe not only are these things weird, but we should be very concerned because th other things happen to Alice that have no explanation. Uh, she's cleaning a window and the wall approaches behind her to squish up against the window. She's cooking. That sequence is kind of cool. I got to give it credit. It doesn't really mean anything, nope. but it's cool. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's... As if, there are many sequences in this movie that don't mean anything and aren't cool. Uh, mm -hmm. So that does that does elevate it above most of the She films. starts having flashes of uh, black and white ballet dancers. Also, that falls into the latter category. Yep. And uh, and Busby Berkeley uh, overhead style musical numbers. And that's correct. And uh, at one point, she's making eggs, and there's nothing in the eggs; they're just shells. I don't know. I feel why like that's, that's one there. of the first things that happens. Oh yeah, like, all these like things. She does that, and it's it's like a it's a visual. It looks cool in a trailer, 
mm-hmm. and doesn't really connect to anything. Same in the trailer. If you've seen that shot where she sinks into the bathtub and her reflection looks back at her, also mm-hmm. there happens. I yep. don't know why it happens. I mean, I don't know. Either. Uh, Jack uh, is successfully, uh, it seems, uh, is able to keep Alice somewhat in check. But in order to draw him closer and make sure Alice stops questioning her reality, Frank promotes Jack, which is the beginning of Alice realizing that Frank has her trapped in victory, and she decides her and Jack need to get the fuck out of there. That's about halfway through the movie and uh, hasn't touched the major spoiler yet. Uh, Everything after that sort of starts leaning in that direction. But there is one thing after that that is actually a scene in the movie I really liked. And if it hadn't have come more than an hour uh, into the movie, I probably would have given this movie a little bit of leeway. But at some point, Alice confronts Frank at a dinner they're having. Mm-hmm. And Frank just very slowly turns everybody against her, uh, man and women. Um, and after sort of challenging her to give it a try, uh, just completely smacks her down. And that I really like. Chris Pine. Once you know that Chris Pine is committed to being the villain, is very good, I think, in his portrayal. Uh, unfortunately, that's also where the script has, decides it doesn't have anything more to say about Chris Pine. So uh, Frank is around for the rest of it, uh, but I would say is not consequential, and his ending very much confuses me, uh, even after I know what's going on. Yeah, that scene is where you're just like, oh, I'm watching a, a movie here. Like, these are actors, like, interacting with each other. Like, I I can understand what's happening in some way. Like, there's a way at which it's so committed to keeping the secret where you're just like, I don't get the stakes of this conversation. I don't know who knows what or what is, like, anyone actually believes in the situation. And in that Chris Pine, like, dinner table sequence, like, it's a dinner party gone wrong. Like, you kind of, like, can, you have a foothold you can put in there. Um, and I think someone has pointed out that, like, Florence Pugh's chemistry with Chris Pine like reflects badly on Harry Styles because you're like, oh, that's what a real actor can do. Like interact with their scene partner. Um, and you're right, Dave, that after that, it's just like all that promise kind of washes away. Then it needs to tell you what's happening. And it does that uh, far too long, much like the lead up, I think, to what was happening. Um, and in a way that uh, without spoiling, I will say at the end of this movie, I was like, mm, it should have been Shia LaBeouf. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no ill will towards Harry Styles. I, you know, would love for him to become a, a big new actor and sell a bunch of movie tickets. I don't care. But uh, all he, you want is for the for movie tickets to yeah, be sold. Yeah, I mean, no, matter, no matter what it takes. I mean, I, I say that after just publishing my latest pan of Amsterdam while we're recording this review, but uh, this episode. But, um, you know, I, I uh, yeah, I think that he is sort of stainless in a way that makes sense for the movie and his ultimate reveal. Um, but you know, he, he, I don't really hang this movie's failure on his shoulders. I don't think really any of the actors, uh, are to blame and Florence Pugh, who remains, I think a really fascinating screen presence and is, is very good in an upcoming Sebastian Lilio movie on Netflix called the wonder, um, is, I, I think does a good job as much as anyone could with this material. It's just so, 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 so painfully undercooked. It's the most basic shit imaginable. And it has nothing interesting to say about anything. And it's all been done before and done better and done people who have given their audience more respect. Uh, And, you know, as I said, it all looks like a Super Bowl commercial. It feels about as deep. 
and the imagery and I, you know, I think that Booksmart was a little bit over-directed, but it certainly suggested that Olivia Wilde knows how to put a movie together. And I think, you know, her, I question her storytelling instincts here. There's certainly no doubt that she has a certain visual panache, but to not be able to feel the lack of texture and, and detail to the story as you were making it is alarming to me. Um, and then also the, the visual language of it beyond just being glossy, we'll get into the spoiler section, but some of like the key imagery that they need in order to connect the first part of this movie with like the spoilery part is so pedestrian and un evocative uh, that it's just really hard for me to imagine this lighting anyone's imagination on fire. Uh, I thought this movie was absolutely interminable. It made the blacklist. Um, uh, that's a damning Well, I mean, award, it, it, but, uh... it, it's the kind of movie, the kind of like sci-fi pitch. Uh, I imagine it's you, a really fun read yeah. because there isn't any well, point the, where... The blacklist script was very different than this one, um, as much has been written about. But it's also still a kind of script that feels like it was engineered you know, or reverse engineered from the blacklist, like to be on the blacklist, to grab people's attention and, and not really have all that much to offer or challenge anyone with. Uh, and the movie then further, you know, diluted from there. This movie sort of felt like me, like uh, the worst iteration after many misunderstandings of theme of like the hours, because it's trying to get at <laughs> stuff like that, where yeah. it's like, what happens when... Uh, woman discovers like a truth and everyone is just so invested in telling her that she's wrong and crazy and whatnot, but it really only comes out in that one scene. And then the rest of it is just weird stuff where most of the time I'm like, I can't wait for that person's Marvel movie, uh, which is how I felt about <laughs> a lot of this cast. Who's in a Marvel movie who you're excited about? A lot of those people have been in Marvel movies. Oh yeah, no, I think Gemma Chan and Harry Styles will both show up in another uh, Eternals um, coming up. Florence they're going to make another Eternals? I mean, they're going to show up in something. I don't know. I okay. wouldn't have told you there was a Deadpool 3, but here we are. Uh, yeah, I mean, Gemma Chan like, is among many people who you see show from this and you know, looking fantastic and being wildly overqualified for what they're given to do. Yeah, it's um, yeah. it's puzzling. This whole movie's puzzling. I don't think it's even bad enough to the point where I'm like, watch it, you'll have a laugh because no, it's bad enough that no. I was just like clawing off my skin to get out of there. I was just I felt suffocated by how fucking dull it was. Uh, I was like, like really, and like the movie ended, and I was sitting in a row full of thirty critics that uh, certainly everyone on this podcast knows, and we all just like collectively looked at each other and were like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like, it was a real cathartic, uh, you know, booing at the screen. The movie ends with its title before uh, the credits start rolling, and it fades up one word at a time. And I was out the door before Darling came up. <laughs> yeah. Patches, you haven't seen this movie. I mean, maybe we'll get into the spoiler section. What are you curious about still? The discourse has been endless. Wait, can Patches guess the spoiler? Can we do that game? Wait, do you know? You do I kind of know because my wife had seen the movie. She was going to appear on this podcast, but wasn't feeling well today because I was like, get get a more uh, female perspective. Olivia Wilde has just been beating the drum that people won't understand this movie mm-hmm. unless well, you I mean, are a woman. I saw it. I know. That's what I'm saying. Hi. Patches, I think I'm it's very fitting that you as the person who is responsible for your wife, you say her opinion on this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and also he's the father of a daughter, so uh, I think I'm I think I'm in the clear. Uh, my wife didn't really care for it. She actually, my my wife, uh, 
didn't uh, she had really low expectations i think uh the the bar was set by the time real people went to go see this movie um wow, and, critics aren't real people wow wow uh, yeah i hate to wow. break that one to you That's live the kind of thing, on the uh, air Chris but Pines uh, frank would say uh i can't say i'm terribly surprised i mean david to your point where if if the movie begins at the end with the twist like what is intriguing about that setup in in spoiler terms that I don't know. They should have told me. Make make something intriguing about it rather than just resigning yourself to making a boring ass movie that like, has nothing to offer the genre. Like if they had dropped the gauntlet by having a twist in the first thirty minutes and then really played with what it means and what it means for the women who are in the movie, uh, I and say, see who knows and who doesn't know, and yeah. like who, like watching it, you know, don on other making any of the other female characters feel like people, which they definitely don't. Can I just gong? Are we yeah. gong? Okay, wait, I want Patches to tell us what he understands the twist. Okay. I, understand. I actually, yeah. I had been spoiled on it and I was wrong. Like I had misunderstood. It was even weirder than I thought. So I'm curious what we. My understanding is Patches. that it is a simulation for incels to keep women like in their ideal yeah. state of servitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, they're you know, going back to you know, mid-century Americana as sort of the it's the, the village, high, but you're trapped of, of when. But they're uh, not actually there. This is the part I wasn't clear on. Like their actual bodies are like in bed at home, and they they have these like doc, um stream love um clockwork orange like eye opener things scanning so it's a, it's a video them game. into this imagination. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, yeah. Michelle, my wife made a, an interesting point that again I will relay her comments, but I will do it without any editorializing. Which her 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 point was: <laughs> this movie seemed to be made by people who have no idea what video games are like, but decided to skewer video game cultures and the people who play them. Um, that she thought mm. that maybe if this movie had been made by anyone who actually played a video game in the year 2022, that it could have been an interesting movie or have some interesting commentary interesting. on it. I would be um, interested in a movie that starts off where it's Harry Styles and Florence Pugh and they're collecting pieces of the Triforce and I get really into that for an hour. <laughs> so and you want to watch the Zelda movie starring Florence Pugh. I mean, I if uh, that's sort of what you're talking about because there is a like a sort of weird sudden third act twist where they're like if he die in the matrix he die in real life and it's like uh but oh, right. not only only the men I guess uh, oh, is, don't they say that to Florence Pugh, like worrying about her dying? They say like, that she, there. Olivia Wilde says they're gonna get your real body, right? So, do you guys, do you guys yeah. find the like the simulation they've created this kind of 1950s era? Is it is that a hacky part of the movie too? Because even watching the trailers and kind of knowing there would be yes. a twist, you could tell. But like, it just feels so overdone like it, it would be interesting to have I mean, a fantasy movie beautiful. where like harry styles and florence Pugh are link and zelda and then all of a sudden you realize this woman is trapped in this incels video game simulation yeah. or something like that yeah. something totally extravagant becomes the simulation here you have pleasantville i mean i just feel and step for wise at all it's been yeah, done i don't know if you knew this matt but uh in <laughs> in certain like 1950s american enclaves uh men were really the breadwinners of the society the oh. women did not have agency they typically just kept the home and were expected to do their husband's bidding uh yeah, it was, it's a shame movies have not explored this really before. yeah oh, that no, makes sense I mean, like so the really kitchen motif in the movie is kind of familiar but, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but i think patch's point is a good one and that like the obviousness of the milieu 
immediately makes all of the movie's points for it. And there's nothing deeper under the surface for it to go. And only in the idea that they're looking at it retroactively through this modern lens um, and these people who want to go back to uh, that kind of society and sort of like undo women's live and all this shit, uh, you know, could it even get even within spitting distance and making a salient point. But otherwise, it's just saying like, hey, some men miss the idea of like would have liked to have lived in the 1950s when they, uh, you know, had that sort of unilateral power in the nuclear family. And it's like, okay, like, I know. (laughs) And like, I'm not going to say that someone's going to go see this and be like, wow, yeah, I really want to be a traditional housewife. Like, I don't think that's a trick, but like, it looks gorgeous. Like, all those houses look amazing. It made me want to go to Palm Springs. And I was thinking about like in the hours in the Julianne Moore segment, like she's living in the exact similar neighborhood, but everything's kind of dingy and the light is weird. Like there is an artistic effort to reflect the state of mind of someone in there. And Don't Worry Darling is so perfectly done with the Harry Styles and the sex scenes, which maybe we should get into. It just really further muddles the message that doesn't make any I sense. Want to get into the place. sex scenes yeah, because talk the, about sex the sex scenes, scenes. I mean, it's very pointedly about you know, depicting, you know, conolingus and men performing oral sex on women. And that is sort of opposed and contrary to the idea of sexual pleasure in, you know, that the 1950s milieu all being male driven. And so I, it is kind of a confused message because it's like, well, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know how much we need to get in the weeds here, but like, no, let's <laughs> talk about like, that's, it's like, what, what is go. the movie trying to say about, about centering female pleasure, like in a, in a movie where, her identity and existence has been completely, uh, you know, sub- subjugated to. Well, she has not consented to the sex that she's having. Well, right. Well, she's not consenting to literally any part of the life that she's having. Yeah. It, ma- it doesn't make any sense. And like, that seems to be something that Olivia Wilde is like proudly proclaiming as one of the themes of her movie. Like, this is a movie where women, female pleasures are the center. And it, why? Why but, would why a movie it? with this theme, with this twist, do that? I have no You've seen idea. The movie and you still really don't know. Yeah, that's not good. It, it, no, I don't know. It, it feels doesn't make any like sense. the sort of thing where you're directing, you know, sequences in some sort of like linear fashion, and you're directing a sex scene. You're like, well, what I want is I want to show women, women's pleasure, and you shoot the whole scene, and you do the whole 360 around Florence Pugh <laughs> orgasming on the table. And then, messing up that whole table setting. Yeah. A lot of and then you're dishes. like, there it is. She did it. She's in her power place, whatever. And you just forgot what your fucking movie was about. Yeah, I, I can imagine <laughs> no. like the script supervisor coming up and be like, uh, Olivia, uh, actually, did you know that the, this this scene doesn't really go with later in the movie when all the men reveal to be trapping all these women? Uh, no, no, no. Yep. This is going to be hot. Shut up. Uh, let's let's keep rolling. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. is the idea that like he, that Harry Styles character is getting off on his ability which may not have carried over into the real world to pleasure his wife i mean like if this is just an ego trip for him um but then again you know it's like her pleasure is really just a mechanism for him to like front load his own um and just a conduit for him to the movie to focus on his own which would again defeat the purpose of including that team in the first place as far as you know what they should have done is use like ribbed condoms yes they're for her but really who's Mm -hmm. Uh that would have solved everything I mean, um, the I movie would have made so... so much more money if there was a shot of Harry Styles putting a ribbed condom on his erect penis. I was yes. so, like, <laughs> deeply offended by how fucking, like, lazy the portal was between the two worlds. Like, they have this very, mm. there's this whole sense of the movie that, that all the men need to go to a place. They need to physically travel to a place in order to leave victory and go back to the real world. And then there's this big chase 
where Florence Pugh is, you know, led you know, just the car chase, whatever. She's trying to get to this place. And despite, you know, all the imagination that could have been spent in this movie, it, it creates some sort of like physical, like evocative space that allows you to go from one place to the other. It can even fucking Westworld did it better. God forbid Westworld season two did something better than literally anything else. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but, it's just like she touches a door and sees some Busby Berkeley shit and she's in the real world. I was like, boo, this is like, tease my imagination, do something. I would, I, I rate. Well, we also assume because the movie does wait to tease your imagination until the very end, because we never see her wake up in the real world. We just hear the gasp of her waking up and then it says, don't worry. And then I was out of the theater. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe there's more. I mean, the, like even if the idea was like or like david you were saying if you start with the twist at the beginning i do have a lot of questions about that like olivia wilde seems to be there by her own admission does that mean that nick kroll knows that she's there does that mean that nick does nick kroll ever feel guilty that he's letting his wife see his children but essentially with a whole bunch of like kidnap rapists like, is there any because the guys are leaving the simulation every day to make money to pay for everybody to be in the simulation. There's just so many fucking layers that could have come into, like, something more meaningful. Why? But it's but why do they need women in the simulation? Couldn't they create a simulation? A great question. Couldn't they simulate women? There's robot children. There are robot children. It makes no sense that there are. Why are I you guess trapping except, people like, these guys? Like, Harry Styles is already married to Florence Pugh, so, like, he just, like, wanted to bring her with him? That's weird. Yeah, and then it's also weird because nobody seemingly has their... Wait, they're married in uh, real life in the movie? In the, like, outside the simulation? Yeah, yeah you see them, like, in, like, their shitty apartment. She's a doctor and he's doing nothing. Yeah. She's a surgeon. Yeah. He the listens to podcasts. scenes that explain why he... He, like, went full incel and, like, devoted himself to the Jordan Peterson-like... Chris Pine is so funny. It's just like Harry Styles with stringy hair sitting in front of one of those like vertical monitors. Uh, and he's just like, oh, I'm a nerd and an incel. <laughs> but I'm married to I'm married to my like badass wife who's Florence Pugh and is like saving people's lives in the hospital. Like none yeah. of why would she be with you? It doesn't like because you it were makes, like, it makes no by Jordan sense. Peterson. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Unless he really is Harry Styles, like out there. Oh, wow. It's like, I used wow. to be part of One Direction, and now I have no direction. Oh, actually, I'm realizing, David, you good. thought that Barbarian was started by a podcast. Don't worry, Darling is actually started by a podcast. Mm-hmm. That's true. Chris uh-huh. Pine's podcast is what set all this into motion. Which means he's also leaving. I don't... I. So, maybe Gemma Chan is the computer program. Maybe she's the fake woman that we've been... And why did she stab Chris Pine? Because he's like, my turn. She's just gonna make the world in is her it own like image. A, is it like a Dolores and Westworld thing where she like gets out of her loop? I mean, maybe I like I don't that that makes it make slightly more sense to me. I don't know. I, I need to do this movie so for. that I don't have to watch Westworld. I really fine. resent David making me like think about and respect <sighs> in this conversation. Anyway, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's bad. Uh, I think I I'm going to watch the last like 15 minutes of this movie when it comes to HBO Max. Am I, am I making the right yeah. decision? Uh, start with the like Chris Pine dinner scene. Yeah, and then watch it to the end. And then like watch it unravel. I think if you skip the first hour of this movie where it just like spins its wheels over and over again, we're like, things are weird. The walls are closing in. She's wrapping her head in saran wrap. She's at ballet class again. The Busby Berkeley numbers because Olivia Wilde wanted to make a Busby Berkeley movie, I guess. I don't know. Uh, 
that stuff really starts to drive you insane. If you just did the second half and like acknowledged it was bad, that might not be such a bad experience. I, I you know, I think Olivia Wilde engendered a lot of ill will over the course of the making of this movie. Some earned, some unearned, most of which, you know, is purely uh, you know, press strafe. It's like, oh, chaff. Like, we don't, we're not going to know the real story necessarily. And I don't think we really care. My only thing for her, I think she'll be okay. I, I would, she just, the next project she makes, I hope she makes another film. She just needs to start with a really impeccable script and mm-hmm. just like, you know, just, just make sure that that thing is sort of bulletproof and take it from there. But uh, I think, you know, selling it on, on Aura and Mystique and whatever misguided ideas of, uh, you know, what is social messaging you're trying to send in this very flimsy context. I, I think just start with a good story and show people that you know how to make a movie because she does. Uh, yeah. It's just, Booksmart is really good. And Book- yeah, Booksmart's Booksmart a great a script. Slack, you know, some of it earned, but I think that it's also that movie works a lot better than a lot of people give it credit for in long, in, you know, broad stretches, broad strokes. Um, and prove to me that, yeah, I mean, like, that's not the kind of movie that can come together and work as well as at least it does by accident. Um, so I just, I just think that this, the script that she, um, and her co-writer, uh, whose name is currently escaping me. Katie uh, Silberman. Katie Silberman. Justice yeah. for Katie's. Um, well, yeah, I mean, or in just, I mean, no, don't disrespect her, but like, <laughs> that, that, that's really, um, she did I, I don't know. I haven't read the original script. I don't know how. By the Van Dyke sons. Uh, yeah, how gruesome the starting, you know, the materials they were working with were, but they certainly didn't do much with them. So I, I would just, you know, a strong script will will save everything for next time around. Well, too bad. It's gonna Radical be Spider. It's gonna be Spider yeah. Woman. It's time okay. for right. it's time for Olivia Wilde's Marvel movie. Sigh. I mean, that's why I'm rooting that's why, you know, before I'd seen this, I was rooting for this movie because it wasn't Spider Woman, you know? It, it was an original I mean, I use this in finger quotes, original idea, original concept that she was <laughs> developing on her own. And it was she was not IP. At the she was marshalling her star power. Yeah. And her, her clout and the goodwill she had earned on uh, Booksmart. And I think it would be a real shame if she just, you know, an understandable one on her part, but a real shame if she just sort of turned well, she may and, also and follow many other uh, filmmakers who hit it big and then kind of flopped and get fired off of Marvel comic book movie that, mm-hmm. that happens to a lot of and people then maybe, too <sighs> yeah. maybe be better off for it i this has been tweeted often and i tweeted about it too but i really do want more movies to follow the lego movie 2's lead and present this like rosy cookie cutter suburb that you know people enter suspiciously and the twist is that no it's, it's chill yeah. it's, it's, it's just a great suburb a place to live yeah it's just a nice place don't to worry live. darling it's it was ma- very Maplewood, literal the movie she didn't have to worry about anything no i know <laughs> just like let let <laughs> these people live be. and vacuum their floors if that's what they want to do that does it for this week's show we'll be back next week in some permutation as we figure out our various travel plans in the meantime tell the people who you are I'm Matt Patches, deputy editor at polygon.com I'm on twitter at Mr. Patches and we have a website fightingintheworm.com where you can listen to two old episodes. I don't know if we talked about Booksmart in the past. I'm sure we did. There's so so many episodes. Uh, and they're on fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the film critic over at IndieWire. You can go read my review of Amsterdam, which went up while we were recording this podcast. 
Um, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show. I also just want to say that I had mentioned in an episode a few weeks ago that we talked about Better Call Saul, that I was not uh, super interested. The first season didn't get me, but I would probably come around. Sure enough, I'm just finishing up the fifth season. Uh, <laughs> I plumbed through it real fast. Uh, excellent show. Can't wait to watch the final season. I maintain the first season, you know, didn't really grab me, but I'm sure that I would find it more interesting the second time around. But uh, turns out literally every television critic wasn't wrong. Who knew? Uh, and I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can email all of us to your international reviews or other miscellaneous podcast at gmail.com. You can hear me on the David Neal podcast on patreon.com slash David Neal, DA7E and Neal, and on Trial by Content, which is covering House of the Dragon, just in case you haven't got enough House of the Dragon. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Little Gold Men uh, talking more about Avatar if you can possibly believe it. Uh, and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-C-H. We're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R where I'd love to hear your burning questions about Don't Worry Darling that we didn't get to because <laughs> I bet there are plenty. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question which was... In honor of Smile, what's cinema's most disturbing look? Thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week. Big yawn. I'm done.